The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. So we've been walking through, this is our 15th week. Um, We started in the fall, and this is our 15th week now of going through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And tonight, as we start, I want to put a question to you. And this is, it might sound like an odd question, but the question is this. Uh, Growing up, did you love playing the game or watching the game? Meaning, did you enjoy being like the spectator or did you actually enjoy being a participant? I know this is a sports metaphor here. Not everyone played sports, but uh, apply it to whatever. If you were in the sciences or the academic or the arts, were you the type of individual who absolutely loved to participate and play. You wanted to get your hands in there and be part of it. Or were you the type that just really enjoyed uh, kind of sitting back and observing and, and watching? I know for me, man, I love playing. Like, it didn't matter actually what it was. I just wanted to be out there. I wanted to be part of it. It would drive me nuts if I had to sit on the bench and, like, wait my turn. In baseball, if I had the chance to be up to bat every single time, I absolutely would have been. If I could have played every position, I, I just loved being part of the game. I loved playing. It was very difficult for me to just kind of sit back and watch. I do actually remember in Little League, uh, I usually got stuck in the outfield because I could run pretty fast and I could do a pretty good job of catching balls that came my way. But I wanted to be the pitcher. Because that's like the glory spot. Like, he gets to touch the ball every single time. And I was like, that's what I'd ultimately like to do. So I would be out in the outfield and in between, like, you know, when it was batters uh, switching up and stuff like that. And usually if you're on the outfield, you just kind of hang out waiting for a ball to come your way. But I would be out in the outfield like this. I would be doing my motions like this, and I would be practicing. I wasn't doing anything. I was just going through the motions in hopes that my coach would actually see me and be like, wow. That Michael Davis, I'm thinking he really wants to be the pitcher. Like, he really wants to get in there and be the pitcher. Well, it never really happened, but I went through those motions. So I realize that life is a bit more complicated um, than a sports metaphor of playing the game or observing the game, but it is safe to say that there are those in life who like to watch. There are those in life, uh, people in life who literally just would prefer to observe. And then there are people who, they want to get in there, and they want to play, and they want to play hard. They want to participate. This is not like a judgment statement on either or. I'm not saying one is a sinner and one is not. That's not the point. It's just to say, which one are you? Which one does your personality kind of lend itself to? Playing or watching? Spectating or just participating? As we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, one of the things, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the only person really playing the game so far is Jesus. The only one who is, he's doing all the teaching. He's the only one fighting all the demons. He's the only one who's, uh, you know, healing people. Uh, He is the only one who is engaging people, preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons. Now, there's 12 men specifically that have been called to follow Jesus, and they are actively following him, meaning they're watching, they're observing, and they're learning. But up until this point in chapter 6, they are the, uh, Jesus is the only one 
who is active, meaning he's, he's playing the game. And a question that I was thinking about is, what do you think the disciples up to this point in the story are thinking? Do you think there's some of the disciples who are thinking to themselves, man, when do I get to do that? Like, when do I get to raise someone from the dead? Like, when do I get to just, like, yell at a demon and tell him to get out and he'd pay attention to me? When do I get to put my hands on somebody and miraculously they would be healed? I have to believe that there were some of the disciples just kind of like, just, come on, Jesus, like, let me go. I'm, I'm so ready. I want to get involved. I want, I want to play. But I wonder if there were some of the other disciples who were thinking to themselves, am I going to have to do that? Like, am I going to have to ever be the one to, like, yell at a demon to leave or, like, cast uh, or, or heal someone? Or am I actually going to have to use my voice to preach or proclaim a message? Like, do I really have to do that? You have some probably who are participants. They wanted, they just couldn't wait to get going. And then some who are just thinking, oh, man, I hope. It's kind of like the teacher in the class. Like, there are those people who are like, teacher, look my way, because I got the answer. Like, I want to talk. I want everyone to hear my voice. Uh, and there were people when the teacher would, like, look their way, they'd, because for fear they'd get called on, right? I can imagine there were some disciples who were like, Jesus, my eyes are totally on you. Like, let me loose. And there were some who were like, oh, I hope he didn't look at me. I, I hope he doesn't ask me to go and do that. If it was you, you've been watching Jesus now for the better part of a year, doing all of these amazing, amazing things, what would you be thinking? Would you be thinking, let me loose, let me play, let me preach, let me teach, let me heal, let me cast out? Or would you be thinking, I am so content to watch all of this cool stuff and I don't have to be part of it or do any of it? I remember in seminary, um, uh, preaching class, it was typically the class that freaked everybody out. Uh, because no one wanted to preach in front of their fellow students, and no one wanted their other professors to come and hear them preach, because we're all terrible. Like, and if you were thinking you were some awesome, like, communicator, preacher, teacher, you were brought down to, like, a really low level pretty quickly. The first half of the semester was all about theory, like how you do it. Like, here are some methods, and here's some things you want to do, here's some things you don't want to do. And I remember the first day, it was like, okay, for the last six weeks, we've been talking about it, we've been teaching, we've been preparing, and now it's your turn. I remember thinking I was scared to death. I was excited, but I was scared to death. I wonder at some level if these disciples were excited, but yet scared. Well, there comes a point in time for all of us where we're confronted with this question. And the question is, will I play? Or am I just going to watch? Will I participate or will I be a spectator? I've been a Christian for the better part of my life, 36 years old. For the better part of my life, I have, I've been uh, thinking about Jesus, talking to Jesus. And if I've learned anything about Christianity, one thing that I have learned is that Christianity is not just a spectator sport. It's not a sport where you can just casually observe. It's full contact at times, but it's very participatory. And what I'm amazed about Christianity is, of all of the ways that God would want to win the world, 
back to himself, he says, I'm going to use humanity. I'm going to use you to accomplish my mission. I'm going to use you and me to win people back. He didn't use like a program. He didn't use angels. Of all of the ways and and methods that God could have chosen, I'm always just amazed that he wants to use you, that he wants to use me to accomplish his greatest purpose, his greatest mission. So tonight, um, I'm going to try and keep it simple and ask you very three point, very pointed questions. And if you answer no to any of these questions, if you answer yes on, on two but no on one, you will be an individual who's going to have a very hard time playing the game, meaning getting involved with God's mission, being on mission with God. I will venture to say that you'll spend most of your life on the sidelines just watching. And I don't want any of, I don't desire that for any one of us to just watch life go by. If you answer yes on all three of these questions, then the great reality, the great joy is that you have set yourself up and prepared yourself to truly be on mission uh, with God. So let me uh, pray for us as we jump into the text that we're going to look at tonight. Uh, But those are three questions. I'll I'll walk through them in a second. But my hope is that all of everyone in this room would say, yes, yes, yes. I want to participate. This is not just in any game. This is in a mission that God has for each and every single one of us in this room. I don't want anyone to miss being part of of God's mission, God's purpose for each of us, but bigger than that, God's purposes for humanity. God, thanks for uh, our journey thus far in the book, the gospel, the story as told by Mark. God, I'm especially excited about uh, tonight and the text that we're looking at as these 12 men are confronted with getting involved being participants now in the game, not just watching, not just observing, but they are confronted with, they are challenged with doing the very things that they have witnessed Jesus do. God, I pray that tonight each person in this room would just be completely honest as we would be confronted with these questions. And God, I do pray that each of us would get to a place of saying yes and yes and yes that we would give our lives to something that is far greater than ourselves. And we would position our lives to be on mission with you, God. That we would not settle for anything less. So, Father, tonight as we look at uh, scriptures, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive everything that you would have for us in this place tonight. We're fully confident, God, that uh, scripture can speak to Every single person in this room, no matter where we're at, whether we believe in you or we're still doubting and just questioning whether you're even real, God, I pray that tonight uh, your voice would just engage every mind, every heart in this place tonight. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this is uh, looking back to uh, Mark uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And I'm going backwards a little bit to set us up for something that Jesus invited these men to and is now going to take place here. 
In uh, Mark 3, 13 through 15, it says, Jesus went up on the mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles. Remember, apostles just means sent one. An apostle is one who was sent. So he appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, two things in those, those verses right there. First thing is that he called them to be with him. This is the very thing the disciples have been doing. They've been with Jesus. They've been watching. They've been learning. They've been observing. They've been soaking it all in. They'd be like, wow, that's what he talks about. That's what he does when he puts his hands on people. That's apparently how you talk to demons. Like they have been in watching, observing mode. But remember in chapter 3, he says that he might be with them and then he might send them out. And this is what is about to happen here in the text we're looking at in Mark chapter 6. It's time, you've been with me, now it's time to go and to be, literally be Jesus to the communities that I'm going to send you to. Literally, you hear me say this a lot, but to be the heart, to be the mouth, to be the hands, to be the feet of Jesus. You've been with me, now it's your turn to go. You've heard me say it, you've seen me do some things, now it's your turn to go and do this. So simply put, it's time to go do what Jesus has been doing. So we're in, uh, pick up the story in Mark chapter 6, starting at uh, the end of verse 6, it says this. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Remember last week, Jesus was utterly rejected by his hometown. They were like, we don't want you. Your message, it's, it's not for us. They utterly rejected Jesus, and so he left. It says, Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. These instructions are very... If they're sending these, Jesus sending these guys out on mission, it seems like he's preparing them for like, if you're going to take a vacation, these are the instructions you should follow. Very odd instructions he gives. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. See, I would do very well. I'm already totally on board with the sandal thing. The tunics, I'm not into wearing robes. If someone would bring me a cool robe, I might consider wearing it. But anyways, I digress. Uh, Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. And so they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So Jesus calls 12 of these men to him. Now, I can only imagine, anyone ever recently, like a brand new job? It's like your first day on the job, right? Those nerves that you felt like, oh my gosh, like I've been thinking about this job. I've been preparing myself for this job, but now it's time to actually go to work. It's time to actually go and do the very thing that I have been prepared to do. So Jesus calls these 12 men to him, and he sends them out two by two. I can 
imagine that probably some of them were thinking out two by two. What kind of strategy is that? Like, strength in numbers, Jesus. Like, let's do the football team approach and maybe go out, like, have 11 of us, and maybe Judas can be like the water boy. Like, we'll be so much more effective if the 11 of us, 12 of us, stick together. But Jesus says, no, two by two, you will go out. Why two by two? Well, a couple of reasons that Jesus did two by two. Uh, First one is it satisfies an Old Testament uh, law or requirement that there would be two or three witnesses. They're not going out solo, but there would be two or three of them uh, to work together, to preach together. A second reason is it just provides them, meaning the disciples. This is hostile territory. So it provides them an extra measure of protection, certainly companionship. There's a great verse uh, in Ecclesiastes, is two is better than one. It's a better return for their work. And then three, I think this is, at some level, the heart of it. Reach more people. Two by two, meaning there's six teams of men going out, six different towns, six different villages, meaning more people are going to hear the message, are going to hear the good news. We're going to have the opportunity to be prayed for, to be healed. And then Jesus gives them something that ultimately is going to make or break their mission. He gives them his authority. This is a way of Jesus saying, you are going to be an extension. I will not physically be there with you, but you are going to be my ambassador. You're going to be my delegates. Everything that you've seen and heard me do, you have power or you have authority to do those things. Be his voice, his hands. They can represent Jesus in full power and full authority. So Jesus gives them his authority or his power to accomplish all that he sends them to do. This is my first question. Okay, remember there's three. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions actually, but there's three that I specifically uh, want us to really wrestle with. And this is the first question. Will Jesus accomplish through me through you, through us, will Jesus accomplish through me his mission? Okay? Will Jesus really use you, use me, to accomplish his mission? Meaning, will he use me? Or if I go in his name, is it really going to work? Or am I just setting myself up to be embarrassed? Like, if I really go, and if I say I'm giving myself to the mission, to the gospel, to what God is sending me to do, is it really going to work? Like, this is a question I really want you to wrestle with. Because I know that for some of us, if not a lot of us, we wrestle with, not me. I'm not spiritual enough. I got too much junk in my background. I don't have enough experience. I don't have uh, enough knowledge. I'm too young. I'm too old. I don't look a certain way. We have all these reasons of why God would not want to use you to have an impact of winning the world. So the first question I repeat again, will Jesus really accomplish through you and me his mission? If you wrestle with that question of certainly not me, how could it possibly be me? Please keep in mind who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to a group of men, 12 men specifically, in their early to mid-20s. Okay, these guys were spiritual dropouts. 
meaning they didn't make it all the way through rabbinic school. How do I know that? Because they're doing a very different profession. Most of them were fishermen. So spiritually, these guys could not cut it. Uh, Education, they didn't really have much of an education. Only the people who went through rabbinic school were the ones who were getting educated in this way. They didn't have any experience. When Jesus met these guys, some literally were standing in the water, drying out their nets. And some had a really questionable background. I think of Levi. He was a cheat. He was a liar, a manipulator, a deceiver. And Jesus said, you'd be really good on this team. So for those of you who think somehow you've done something that rules yourself out, just keep in mind who Jesus is ultimately talking to here, a group of very ordinary people, and he's inviting them to do something very extraordinary. So Jesus did not send these guys because they were the most extraordinary type of men. He sent them because God chooses people to be the agent of his message. And this is what I love. Of all the ways that Jesus, all the ways that God could reach people, he says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you. That's the first question. Will Jesus really accomplish his mission, the message, through me? So Jesus, what I love about these guys is Jesus was entrusting it all to them, meaning he was putting all his chips in one basket. He invested in these 12 men for the better part of three years, and really specifically in three or four of them uh, of the 12. He was banking on these guys, meaning if they didn't fulfill the mission, it would fail. There was no backup plan. It was these 12 guys or were in trouble. He totally invested in these men, and he sends them out to be his hands and his feet. And what I love is, did it work? Well, there's a reason that 2,000 years later, I'm still up here talking about Jesus, the God-man. So yes, it worked. They were faithful. As I was thinking about this, I came up with a very hypothetical question for us. But if it was just up to us, like if we were it, like the 80, 90 people in this room tonight, if, if this was it, we were representing these 12, so to speak, and we would be entrusted with the message and the mission, ultimately the gospel. Would the gospel still be around 2,000 years from now? I would love to say absolutely, but it's a tough question. If it was just us, would there be people 2,000 years from now saying, man, I'm thankful for that community who took serious the call to be a people, a community that was on mission. Jesus staked it all on these 12 men. How do you answer the first question? I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but the first question is, will God really use you and me to accomplish his purposes, his mission? By the way, the mission was threefold. It was preach the gospel, meaning tell people to repent, meaning the kingdom of God is here in Jesus. So orient your entire life around Jesus. Repent. The second uh, aspect of uh, the mission was to cast out demons, to lead people towards freedom, 
The third part of the mission was to heal people, meaning meet their physical needs. I don't know if you've noticed this, but what I love about this, their mission was all the same thing. Meaning it wasn't like, okay, team one, you guys are on preaching detail. Uh, Team two, you're going to take on uh, the healing people. So you go work with the sick people and go house on them. The third team, you guys are going to deal with, thank you, someone got that. I appreciate that. The third team, you guys are on, uh, you're going to work with the demons. I mean, you're going to be doing battle with them. Like, this is sometimes the way the church works. Like, we have evangelism teams. They just do evangelism. Well, I'm not on that team, so that's, that's not my gig. We have prayer teams or compassion teams, specifically towards uh, healing and praying for people. Oh, I'm not on that team. I, I, I don't pray. I don't know how to heal somebody. That's not my gig. And then we have like the spiritual warfare team, and we usually kind of put them in the back room because they're the freaky, freaky ones. They're the ones who are like fighting demons. It's usually not even the back room, like in the back shed behind the church where no one can see them. And we kind of divide teams within the church. What I love here is there was no teams. The mission was the same. Go tell people to repent. Turn and give their life to God. If people are demon-possessed, set them free. If people are sick, if they're wounded, heal, heal them. Pray for them. It was one mission for all of these teams. Simply stated, when he sent these guys out, it was just, I don't know how else to simply say it, but guys, just go and do what I've been doing. It's not that, it's not that difficult. It's not that fancy. For us, it's not that complicated. I know some people are like, I'm not a preacher. Your life is the loudest message and the best message you will ever give. We're all preachers. And you could go down the list, well, I'm not a healer. I'm not the, like, I'm not the guy living in the back shed behind the church. Like, this is what Jesus has given us to do. And the message is simply just go do what Jesus did. What you read about and what he said, go say those same things. How you heard Jesus pray, go pray those same things. It can't be more simple. Just go be Jesus. And I'm pretty convinced that that's exactly what the world needs. It doesn't need more of you. It doesn't need more of me. No offense to any of us. Ultimately, what the world needs is Jesus. All of him, not just some of him. So this is the mission, the, the mission and the message. It just go do what you've seen, what you've heard, what you've witnessed Jesus do. I repeat the question. Do I believe that Jesus will use me, will use you to accomplish his mission? And I know I'm repeating myself here, but some will say it's just not my job. Like, that's a professional's job. Like there are professional Christians. I'm not a professional Christian. I'm just like you. I'm a follower like you. For those of you who've made a decision, there's no such thing as a professional Christian. But there are those people who are utterly convinced that God will use them to win the world and those who believe that 
God's just going to use someone else to do it. Which one are you? Are you utterly convinced that God wants to use you to be part of winning the world, or is it just for someone else to do? That's question one. I'll go on to question two. Jesus gives very specific instructions. I'll read them again uh, as they were headed out on their mission. This is starting at verse uh, 8 and all the way through 11. These were the instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you, listen to you, shake the dust off your feet, and when you leave, as a testimony against them. No bread, no bags, no money, no extra tunic, and you're to stay put, stay in one place. Why all of these things have just basically bring nothing with you? Well, one is... In Jesus' mind, there is an incredible sense of urgency with this mission, with this message. There's no time to go home and have a wardrobe crisis of, oh my goodness, I'm going to be gone for a few weeks. What should I bring with me? What outfit should I wear? I'm going to be in this town this day. It's probably going to be about 70 degrees. There's no time to mess around and go home and pack my bags. There is a sense of urgency that Jesus is giving these guys. And imagine, by the way, if you were to think about it, if you're not really bringing anything with you, no food, no money, no extra clothes, just a stick to beat people with if they get too close. Like, if that's really all you had, don't you think that there would be utterly, absolutely no hesitation in going really quick to people? Why? because I'm going to need a place to stay tonight. Why? Because it's a good chance I'm going to get hungry by 6 o'clock this evening. There would be a sense of urgency built in right away of, I have to go, because if I don't, no shelter, no food, no provision for just daily basic needs. So Jesus says, don't take anything with you. That's one reason. The second reason for why this is, uh, he's not traveling, he's like, He's telling these guys, this is not a first-class deal. Like, I'm not calling you to travel in style or to travel in first class. I've only got to fly first class once in my life. I think it was with Kyla when we went on our honeymoon. Uh, They looked at us and were like, you guys just got married, didn't you? I was like, how can you tell? And they're like, we just happen to have room in first class. I wasn't in first class for more than like 10 minutes when I was getting annoyed with the people behind the curtain. And I was like, can you please tell them, those people who can't afford what we obviously can, can you please tell them to keep it down? I'm trying to rest. I'm having a moment here with my new wife. Like, I all of a sudden turned into this snob who think he, like, deserved everything. Yes, more wine? Oh, absolutely. Steak? Can I have two, please? Like, I turned into this person. I was like, who are you? But sad thing is, I was like, wow, I don't want to ever have to go back to coach. I mean, I saw what was behind the curtain, and it was... It was, it was like the promised land. It was just beautiful. I've never flown first class since, but to the point, Jesus is telling these guys, this is not first class. I'm not calling you to travel in style. And this is the third thing, and I think that is ultimately uh, uh, what's important, is Jesus is saying to these guys, be totally dependent on God to provide for you. No extra clothing, no food, no bags, no money. 
basically you got nothing but a stick and some sandals. But you're armed with a very compelling and very convincing mission and message. Be totally dependent upon God that he will provide for you. This is my second question. The second question is this. Can I trust God to provide? Meaning, will he really take care of me? Whatever my needs happen to be, can I really trust that God knows what those needs are and will meet every single one of those needs? If you are not convinced that God will, you will not be a person who lives his life on mission. Because in the back of your mind, you're always thinking, I got to take care of myself. I have to provide for myself. Why? Because God won't. Do you believe that God will provide for you? I don't care what your need is. Do you believe that God does know your need and will provide for your need? A follow-up question to that is, have you ever had to accept just the generosity or hospitality of someone else? I'm going to venture to say that probably all of us at some point have. So when someone was just being generous to you, extending just hospitality, whether it was with food, whether it was with shelter, whether it was with money, whatever it may have been, how did you respond when someone provided for you? Was it just with a a sense of humble gratitude of just, gosh, thank you so much? Or was it with an attitude of, thanks, but no, I'll take care of this myself? Too prideful to say, you know what, I appreciate uh, a place to stay. You know what, thanks, I appreciate uh, the meal that you're providing. I, I appreciate the loan to help me get out of this mountain of debt that you're providing. When someone extends hospitality, generosity to you, how do you respond? Do you humbly accept or do you pridefully reject and say, I will take care of this myself. I'm a man or woman of my own means, and I certainly don't need you or anyone else providing for me. How you answer this question of which one, accept or reject, say yes or no, is going to have a huge impact on how you answer the question of, can I trust God to provide? If I've learned, I've learned a few things in my life. One is God uses people to provide for people. In my experience, God uses people in my life to provide for my needs. I've been in ministry since I was uh, about 20 years old. Intentional ministry, I mean, working with church um, or parachurch uh, organizations. And in those 16, 17 years, I've just seen God do some pretty amazing things of providing for me. Those who know me really well uh, kind of make fun of me when they say, wow, Michael, you just have like the gift of receiving. And I'm like, yes, I do. (laughs) And I don't say that in a prideful way. I say that in a way of it's amazing to, to see how God has provided for me. Like I just have a long list of things that God has provided, whether it has been shelters. I can't tell you how many different basements I've lived in ever since I was 16 years old and different homes that I've lived in. How many times I never even paid rent. I never even was able to, but people just generously said, hey, I'd like to help meet that need. 
how many times where I had absolutely no cash, and for whatever reason, coincidence, right, someone just happened to provide exactly what the financial crisis of the day was. I have a very long list of God just providing needs that we had. I remember when Kyle and I moved out here um, from the Chicago area, from the Midwest area, uh, about five years ago, actually this summer. Uh, before we were preparing to, to come out, we were like, you know, it would be great if we could finally like own a home. Because we'd been married now uh, about eight years at the time, or seven years, something like that, and we had been renting. Why? Because as a seminary student working at a gas station, that's not the most conducive to buying a house. And so when we came out here, we were like, Lord, we'd really love to be able to, uh, to buy a home so that we can have our home as a place where anyone and everyone could just come over and we could use our home to be a blessing to people. Because cramming like five, six people in an apartment, you know, it's fun for a day, but not like six months. And so when we started doing MLS searches, we were like, wow, it's really odd. There's like no homes in Massachusetts like under $400,000. That's weird. Because in Ohio, it kind of just works. And in the Midwest, it's like if you have roughly 80000 to maybe 120000 like it's a pretty nice house. I'm not talking like a mansion, but very doable, at least for me. And when we literally, you know, this church where I'm, where I'm working at is in Winchester, and I was like, that's very interesting. The average home in Winchester is like $850,000. I'm like, who are these people? Like, who lives in Winchester? But then I was like, well, Lexington, let's check Lexington. Almost the same. I was like, sure, surely, like, maybe Arlington's a little bit cheaper. And it was. It was only like 800000 in Arlington. And I was like, Lord, how is it possible that, you know, we could ever even think of getting into a home? I mean, it came to the point of... We could afford something in, like, Maine. It would be a four-hour commute to come to church, but it, I'd have a house. And it was really amazing. So Kai and I were just praying, Lord, you know that would be, we would love it. We would absolutely love to have that as a reality. And so when we got here, uh, someone from this church said, Michael, you know what? I really would love for you to have a home. So you go ahead and take a mortgage for what you can afford on your salary, and I'll take care of the rest. And my, my first response was like, no, sir. I will provide for my family, and I will, you know. Do you think I responded in an attitude of pride like, no, I'm not going to have you pay for my house? Or do you think I saw that as an absolute answer to prayer? I would love to be able to sit up here and tell you I own my own home. I don't. I own like the first floor. <laughs> That's it. I could be all just prideful about it and be like, ah, oh, I'm not going to tell anyone that. Or I could use that just as a very simple illustration to say God provides. I absolutely believe that God will provide whatever the need is. I know that to you, for, for some of you, that's an absolute extreme need. Or an extreme example, I mean. I'm going extreme just to, so you know that when you trust God to provide, he will. There are some of you who are sitting in this room where I've counseled you and encouraged you, don't buy it. 
not because you don't need it, but because I believe God will provide. And some of you have testimonies and stories of, I'm so thankful that I didn't spend that $1,000 and put myself further in debt because God provided and met that need. The second question, do you believe that God will provide for you? He will meet that need. I'm not talking about like when you want him to meet it or in a very certain way. I'm just talking fundamentally, do you believe that God will provide for any needs that you have? You know, as we're talking about church planting Genesis, this has caused some interesting conversations around the Davis household of, Michael, are you going to have a job? I'm like, well, I don't know, maybe. Are we going to be able to stay in this house that God's provided? I don't know. That's a good question. I hope so. I don't know if, if we plant, if this will be something where I'm going to have to start working at Chipotle. Not sure if I would mind that at all, but maybe pick up like an hour or two just to get the free food. But Kyla was asking a lot of good questions. And so I came back and then said, Kyla, let's think about this. We have known each other now for 18 years. Been married for 11 and a half, or 11 years. But we've been in relationship as friends, as boyfriend, girlfriend, as fiance, as husband and wife. We've been walking together for 18 years. Is there, can you give me one story? Can you give me one example where we have not seen God provide for us? And I was like, if you can give me one, I'll totally bail and jump ship. We sat there for a few minutes and we're trying to think almost in a way to like, huh, let's try and find one where God didn't provide. In 18 years, we could not look back and say, you know what? God did not take care of us there. God did not meet a need there. There was never a point, at least in my experience, in my story, where I could not say, God did not provide. Jesus sends these men out on mission. He says, guys, don't take anything. Just trust. Depend on God to provide for anything and for everything. And if he uses people to provide for you, then humbly accept that as a gift from God. Don't be a prideful person that says, no, I'll take care of myself. Trust that God will provide for anything and everything that you need. Think about it like this. If, if you knew that, like if you really believed that God would take care of you, I mean for everything, is there anything that you wouldn't do? If you knew it was guaranteed, everything would be taken care of. Is there anything in your life, if God called you to go do this, or called you to go be here, is there anything you would say no to? If you knew, shadow of it out, that God would provide for you. This is the second question, because how you answer that will largely influence impact if you actually be that person who is on mission. Thirdly, third question. This is uh, the story of a man who was known as a barbarian. Question one, do you really believe that God will use you to accomplish his greatest purpose? Question two, do you believe that God will provide for you? And then question three is, we find this in the story of John the Baptist. And I'm going to read this story, and it's a really weird story. 
It's a really sad story because John the Baptist, if you don't know who he was, he was the man who was sent by God ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus. Where we find John now in the story is he's sitting in prison. He's sitting in jail because he told some wannabe king that what he did, what he was doing was wrong. And because of that, he was put in prison. It really upset him and his family. King Herod. And there's a point in the story where there's a young 15-year-old girl who plays the role of a stripper, who pleases Herod so much, he goes and says, hey, whatever you want, it's yours. This 15-year-old girl goes to her mom and says, mom, what, what do you think? What should we ask for? This mom sends her 15-year-old girl back to Herod and says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. The man who was utterly faithful to his mission in this story now finds himself in prison. This is Mark chapter 6, and I'm picking up at uh, verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, well, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work within him. Others said, well, he is Elijah, and still others claim he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. Everyone's like, this Jesus is utterly amazing, phenomenal. Certainly, he has to be a prophet from long ago, certainly Elijah. Some are saying John the Baptist, but then Herod is like, wait a minute, didn't I kill that guy? Didn't I cut his? Is it possible that this is like John the Baptist reincarnated? Verse 16, but when Herod heard this, he said, wait, John, the man I beheaded, has he been raised from the dead? Then we enter into flashback mode. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. This is now cross the line into incest. This is not good, by the way, if you were wondering. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. And when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. It was almost like, John, entertain me, tickle my ears. Verse 21, finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. This is like the party of all parties. Okay, This is like a modern-day modern day guy's birthday party slash stag party. No women allowed, and we're going to have some very scantily dressed women in the room. Verse 22, when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. Okay, this is getting really sick. He's married his half-brother's wife, and now his wife's daughter, his stepdaughter, is dancing very provocatively, and rather than going like this, he's just sitting back in his chair and be like, wow, very impressive, daughter, very sick, Herod. When the daughter of Herodias came and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, 
Whatever you ask, I'll give up to half of my kingdom. And so she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? The head of John the Baptist. This is really bad parenting. If your child comes to you and says, you're not going to believe it. I can have anything I want. Mom, what do you think we should go for? What kind of mother would tell her child, tell him to cut his head off, put it on a silver platter, and give it to you? Like this is, maybe Stephen King came from this lineage or something, but this is sick. What mother would tell her daughter to go and do this? Well, at once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now at this party in front of everybody the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed because of his oath and his dinner guest. He did not want to refuse her. So immediately he sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went and beheaded John in prison and brought back his head on a platter. And he presented it to this girl. And she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. There's a lot of details in this story. None that I'm just going to get into. It's a, to me, what's most tragic about this story is John. The guy who had prepared the way for Jesus is rotting in prison and at the whim of a very jaded mother sends a 15-year-old girl and says, go get his head. This is how the one who prepared the way for Jesus, this is how his life ends. The question that I wanted to finish with, the third and final question, is a question that comes from John the Baptist. It's not a question that comes from Mark's account of John the Baptist. It's a question that John asks Jesus from prison in Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 11. It says this, starting at Matthew 11, verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. End of period. End of uh, the verse there. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John asks a very tough question. And his question is, are you the one, or should we ultimately expect someone else? If that is a question you have never asked, I want you to ask it right now. Because my final statement would be, if Jesus is not the one, then leave now. Like, walk away from Christianity. If Jesus Christ is really not the one that the Bible proclaims him to be, God's Son, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who makes you and I right with God now, today, and forever. If he is not the one, then walk away. But if he is, if Jesus Christ really is the one, then give him everything. If he really is God's Son, Savior, Messiah, Christ, Redeemer. There is nothing that should hold you back from giving everything 
to this God-man, the person of Jesus. It's interesting, he asks this question, is he really the one? John's sitting in prison. The good news that he had proclaimed, now he's just hearing about it. He doesn't get to see it. And interestingly, Jesus says, go back to John and report to him. He quotes Isaiah 61. And he, he, he reports, you know, hey, John, I'm doing everything the Messiah should do. Blind are seen, the lame are walked, the sick are cured, the dead are raised, the good news is preached. And I can picture John thinking, did he say anything else? Like, because Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61. And I can think John is like, did he say anything else? Because Jesus left off a very important part of Isaiah 61. The part where like setting the captives free, the prisoners are released. And what's very interesting that's leading John to this question is if Jesus, if you're really the one, why aren't you coming for me? You are coming for everyone else. You're coming through for everyone else. But yet I'm sitting here in prison. There's a, a book um, written by Erwin uh, McManus called The Barbarian Way that tells a great story of one of the original barbarians. And this is a, a quote from that book. It says, John, I'm not coming through for you. I'm not getting you out of prison. I'm not sparing your life. Yes, I have done these things and more for others, but the path I chose for you is different than theirs. You will be blessed, John, if this does not cause you to fall away. Why would Jesus rescue John from prison if that is where God wanted John the Baptist? If that was his mission, if that's exactly where he was supposed to be, why on earth would Jesus ever rescue him from that? It looks pretty dim or pretty grim. He's in prison. Of course he'd want to be out. But if that's where God had him, why on earth would Jesus rescue him from the very place that God wants him? I don't know where you are tonight, but I'll tell you this with full conviction. You are in the exact place that God wants you. And some of you, that might be really hard to hear because you're in a place of transition. You just don't know what's happening with you and around you. You have a lot of uncertainty in your life. You might not like the place you are, but can I just assure you, the place you are is the very place that God wants you. This question, the third question, is Jesus really the one? If he is, then no matter where you are right now, you can rest assured because of Jesus, it is the best place for you to be. And I understand that might be really hard because some of you might be in a really bad place. Your prayer is simply, if this is where you want me, Jesus, I trust fully who you are. And where I am, I want to be purposeful. I want to be on mission. I want to be faithful to the message no matter where I am. In prison, John's preaching to Herod. Herod, you're a sick individual. What you're doing is wrong. It didn't stop him from preaching a message of repentance. Three questions. Is Jesus, uh, the third question, is Jesus really the one? 
I'm repeating them. The first question, will God accomplish through me what he promised? Can I trust God to provide is the second. And is Jesus really the only, is Jesus really the one? If you answer yes to those three, that Jesus wants to use you to accomplish winning the world, that no matter what he's called you to, he will provide. And because of Jesus, if you believe that he is God's son, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, then there is absolutely nothing you should give all to him. And thinking about um, how just to finish, um, I don't really have a finish for you tonight, so I'm just going to let this go. I've given you three questions. There might be, you say yes on two, but are really hurting on one. You might say yes to, to one and say no to two, or you might say no to all three. I want you to, as we enter into worship and responding to God, I just want you to sit with these questions. I want you to hear, God wants to use you to win the world for him. I want you to be assured that no matter how bleak your circumstances look, no matter how broke you look, no matter whatever mountain you've gotten yourself behind, I want you to hear, God will provide. And I want to challenge you because I believe, I believe the scriptures make this clear, that Jesus is the one, the only one. Give all of yourself to him. Father God, I pray that as we would enter into worship, that these three questions, God, we would really wrestle with. Father, if there's anyone who's having a hard time on all three or maybe two or just one of them, God, I pray that you would, just through your spirit, whisper confidence and encouragement that you want to use each of us to win the world for you. God, would you whisper and give confidence that no matter what, you will provide. And Father God, because your son Jesus Christ is the son of God, the Savior, the Redeemer, God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room has not given their life over to Jesus, the one who gave himself for us, God, let tonight be the night that a decision would be made to say, I'm giving my life to Jesus and orient our entire life around him. Lord Jesus, we want to lift our hearts in song and worship to you as a way of responding. So, Father, hear not only our worship, but hear our prayers as we would sit with you on these things. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.